if at any time during the talk this evening you cannot hear what I'm saying, just raise your hand like this. Because some people have told me they can't hear too well in the back. So just raise your hand and I'll try to speak louder. Last week I talked about the type of discourse the Buddha used to give when he was invited to a meal at one of his supporters' house. And in this discourse he would begin by talking about the virtue of generosity and continued on in a uh, sequential progression of talking about the different trainings that one undergoes or undertakes on this path of awakening, continuing on to talk about living and virtuous life or living with ethical standards, talking about karma, the happiness that results from the development of concentration, the Four Noble Truths, and finally getting to talk about the happiness of peace. So tonight I want to continue on this series of talks that I'm preparing on (coughs) happiness. And you might remember that last week I acknowledged what we all know, that happiness is really what we're after in everything we do in our life, with our life. And it implies that there is some acceptance of the way things are and some ability to find contentment with that if we are to find any happiness in this life. Last week I spoke about the happiness that we generate and experience by developing our open-handed generosity by the accumulation and the enjoyment of a wide circle of friends, being loved by many, having a reputation and a name that is well-respected, feeling self-confident in any group of people, these experiences are not insignificant in our life. And if we could actually enjoy a wide circle of wise friends, it would conduce to our happiness. But the happiness that we can experience as a result of generosity leaves wide areas of our lives untouched. We have 
more extensive relationships in this world. We have a mind that is raging out of control. And our understanding is sometimes barely enough to read the newspaper. (laughs) Before I continue, I just want to acknowledge that what we are doing here in practicing moral behavior, developing concentration, and hopefully cultivating that seed of wisdom that brought us here is probably, no, it is definitely the best thing you can do for yourself. And it's the best thing that you can give the world. So tonight I want to talk about sila, or about ethical conduct, and the happiness that results from it. In this tradition, sila is the first of the trainings in the Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught. Right speech, right action, right livelihood, which includes the five precepts of, that we undertake here, not killing, not stealing, telling the truth, abstaining from in this case, abstaining from sexual activity, and refraining from the use of intoxicants that cloud the mind. Sila in the Buddhist tradition also includes the 227 rules that the monks live by, and the 350-some that the nuns used to live by, which they say, when they're actually expanded to all of the nuts and bolts, and the fine points, that there are about 90,000 million rules for monks and nuns. Because every, every aspect of your life has at least one, if not several, rules that one tries to live by. This is also part of the Buddha's instruction in Sila. Ethics, or an ethical life, is concerned with what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is skillful or unskillful in our lives. It's dealing with the principles, the obligations, the behavior, and the standards with which we live by. In this discussion, I want to talk about two very obvious mental factors, which the Buddha called the guardians of the world, because they are the two factors of mind which protect the world from descending into immorality. And they indicate respect for ourselves and for others. The first of these is in the Pali known as Hiri, 
which modestly translated into English means modesty, and the other is otapa, translated into English as conscience or discretion. Hiri is the subjective sense each of us has of what is right and wrong. And we each have this sense of what's right and wrong. And when we act contrary to it, we feel a twinge. And we would feel a twinge whether there was anyone else around to see or know about it. Because it's our standard which is being contravened. So it's something like self-consciousness. But in this case, it's a healthy self-consciousness because it brings to mind our thoughts, our behavior, our actions, our intentions behind actions. And it prevents us from doing what we consider morally inappropriate. This needs to be distinguished from that which we sometimes feel as shyness, which keeps us from doing some things, from meeting certain people, from doing certain things, because we're shy. This is not, or hiri, modesty, is not that type of shyness. Rather, hiri arises from a respect for ourselves. a valuing of and knowing our worth as a human being so that we would shudder to act or speak without that respect, without taking into consideration our worth as a human being. In practical terms, it means we like ourselves. We admire and have affection for ourselves, and we don't want to act or speak in a way that damages that, which we love most, ourselves. It sometimes arises by reflection on our own status, qualities, education, and what we value in life. Otapa, on the other hand, translated as conscience, is what we perceive to be community standards of right and wrong. And we all have this sense within us also. Knowing that within the community we find ourselves, some things are considered right, skillful, wholesome, and some are not. It's important 
when I talk about the otapa, mental factor, to consider which community you feel you belong to. Is it geographical? Is it a political community? Is it a philosophical community? Or a spiritual community? And whose standards are you feeling resonant with? Otapa arises out of our respect for others. Our ability to see them, to look at them, to regard them as worthy, and to take a protective interest in them so that we will not act in such a way as to harm them. It is important to be seen and recognized as a human being and the humane qualities that we have. And it's important to see that in others and to acknowledge that and then to act knowing that. They sometimes say that otapa is moral fear. And it's not the fear of snakes and it's not the fear of you know, going into dark places or public speaking or whatever your fear is. It is the fear of doing something wrong for which we ourselves will feel regret. So these two, conscience and modesty, are the guardians of the world with which the world is protected from falling into a chaos of immorality by respecting ourselves and each other. When we actively cultivate and recognize hiriotapa in our mind, we can act so as to protect ourselves and others. We protect ourselves from remorse, regret. We protect ourselves from being blamed by others. We protect ourselves from guilt or a solidification and identification with I doing something wrong. And we protect ourselves from fear of punishment. And if we could actually live consciously without fear of self-blame, chastisement by others, criticism, it would certainly conduce to a feeling of an experience of happiness. And if we could live that way, others would benefit by not needing to be afraid of our actions.
and feeling safe with us, feeling secure. The foundations for a tranquil life from which insight and wisdom can spring. Of course, if there is hiri and otapa in the mind, there are their opposites. A hirika and an otapa. Essentially, lack of consideration for ourself, lack of consideration for others. These arise when we do not consciously consider our value and worth or others' value and worth as a human being, when we do not hold ourselves in esteem. And then our behavior is abusive. We are insensitive to the tremblings in our heart and we're certainly insensitive to others. It's a real disconnection from ourself to act in a way that disturbs the peace of our heart, to interfere in others' lives in some way that disturbs their peace of mind. And that offensive behavior is what in Christianity is known as sin. It's an estrangement from our sensitive self, or the whole, or the community, or God, or however you understand the whole. But this offensive behavior, or this sin, is not a judgment imposed by any spiritual authority. Rather, it is an understanding we have of the disturbance of our own heart, knowing what our internal standards of right and wrong are, and knowing what our community standards of right and wrong are. So that when we feel that we have offended ourselves or others, a confession then is an acknowledgement of the regret or the remorse that we feel at having disturbed ours or others' peace of mind. And this confession is really an empowering act of self-knowledge. Because it brings us down, brings us, humbles us from our arrogant and assertive self-righteousness, where we reestablish connection with others through confession and acknowledging our commonality. We should understand that a confession is not effective if it is guilt-inducing or a shaming humiliation. 
shame under pressure of any authority is extremely destructive, destroys your self-respect, destroys your sense of value as a human being. And we should be quick and decisive in opposing any attempt to shame us. Guilt, on the other hand, is really the feeling we have as a result of an intentional offense. When we intentionally choose to speak or act in a way that offends our own sensibilities or another's sensibilities. And that guilt really solidifies around the intention and that identification with I. Often, yogis here and on retreat feel a sense of guilt, a vague sense of being blamed or blameworthy for some imagined offense or some sense of inadequacy. And this uh, pervasive but unacknowledged sense of guilt really undermines the self-love needed in this practice. When I was a monk, I had been a monk for maybe three years. And when you're a monk, you know, you have to keep the rules. It's pretty, that's the way of life. That's your practice. Keep the rules. And there are four rules as a monk, which if you contravene, if you break one of these four rules, you are automatically no longer a monk. And you can't do anything about it. There's no confessing. And you can't be a monk. You can't reordain as a monk again in this lifetime. Pretty severe. There are another 13 rules which are also considered major offenses. And they're pretty major. And if you uh, commit an offense of one of these rules, then you have to go through a very lengthy and public um, penance and uh, probation and asking for permission to be readmitted into the monastic order by four times as many monks as initially admitted you to the order. So it's a pretty major. We try to avoid these ones as best we can. <laughs> Unfortunately, somewhere in my third or fourth year, I contravened one of these rules. Very shameful, very uh, embarrassing, very uh, frightening. Because uh, I was in Thailand at the time, and uh, I didn't know what to do, because I didn't speak Thai, I didn't know what to, I didn't belong to those monasteries. So I waited till I went to Burma, and I knew that as soon as I got to Burma, I had to go see my teacher, Saito Upandita, for any of you who've met Saito Pandita, you know, he's pretty stern. And I had tremendous fear of what was going to happen to me. 
So I knew that I was going to have to see him first thing. So I went to see him when I got to Burma. I went to see him, and he, it was a warm welcome. And uh, he encouraged me to go take care of my room and pack and come back and see him later that night, which I did. And as soon as I walked in, I told him I had to make a confession and told him what I had done, expecting all hell to break loose. Instead, he looked at me and said, are you sure you, broke, you, sure you uh, committed this offense? I said, yep. And he says, did you confess the day that it happened? I said, yep. And he said, well, he says, you can begin tomorrow doing your penance. And he said, you can meet uh, here in, in my cabin uh, at, what it was, 5 o'clock. I think it was 4.30, because we had to get done before breakfast. He says, you can meet here at the cabin, and um, you can join the other monks that are also doing this. <laughs> he says, yeah, there's three other monks also doing this penance. So I felt, well, at least I'm in good company. <laughs> and when I got there the next morning, I found three of the senior elder teachers of the monastery undergoing the same thing that I was doing. And there was no sense of humiliation or guilt-tripping or blaming, but it was a real uh, recognition of the commonality of all of us to have that potential of offending. And it was a real brotherhood, and I imagine it could be a real sisterhood, of um, respect, a real uh, appreciation for willingness to acknowledge your faults and to get on with uh, doing the best you can. And it was such a relief. Felt like all the years of Christian guilt that I felt was lifted off my back in a minute. And it's really powerful to, to go through an experience that is uh, an offense and not shaming. And I encourage you all to do it. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that didn't come out right. <laughs> you know what I mean. Now I'm embarrassed. <clears throat> so in the Buddhist tradition, the sila that we're talking about is contained in the Eightfold Path, as I mentioned. Right, spe right, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Right speech, here we undertake one precept involving speech, and that is to tell the truth. That's difficult enough. But within the Eightfold Path, the factor on right speech includes three other categories of speech. Of course, not speaking falsely. And I think we really, now after a couple of weeks here, can each recognize how 
tremendously difficult it is and how equally important it is to begin to acknowledge the truth of our experience to ourselves, if not to someone else. It's very difficult. Just ask yourself what's happening in any moment, and it's very difficult to know and to acknowledge it to ourselves. But the second uh, guideline for right speech is to refrain from backbiting, from slandering, from talking in such a way as to create division among others. <coughs> Did you ever try not talking about someone who wasn't present? Very difficult. Thirdly, is to abstain from offensive or harsh speech, abusive speech, where with anger we sometimes speak about others' race or others' uh, gender, or we might speak about others' afflictions or their uh, class or income. And we can speak with, with the biting anger to hurt people. And fourthly, is to abstain from frivolous speech. Frivolous speech is really that speech which is uh, useless. It just isn't going anywhere. It isn't for anyone's personal uh, uh, growth and understanding. It's not for the development of any wisdom or dhamma understanding. And it's not for uh, sharing or expressing care and concern for others. Did you ever see any of that on TV? <laughs> Did you ever read any books like that? So that's right speech. Right action is to refrain from killing anything, any living being. To abstain from taking what is not yours, not misusing resources and to abstain from improper sexual activity. And throughout time, different cultures, different civilizations, maybe these standards vary a little bit. But I think in our hearts, we know when we act in accordance or in alignment with these guidelines and when we act offending these guidelines. Right livelihood is earning your living, your means of support, by not contravening any of the above. These areas of life, killing, stealing, sexual energy, speech, really are the areas of life where we create our happiness or unhappiness. And the training in virtuous conduct is really a process of arousing, awakening and arousing and bringing to maturity our intentions, our energy, our motivation, our commitment 
to recognizing, acknowledging, and valuing our conscience and our modesty. And just as a uh, rough outline, I've kind of mapped the trajectory of the maturation of these factors in the mind into five stages, which I want to speak briefly about, just so you can begin to see what we've gone through and what we've got yet to go through, wherever you find yourself on this path of uh, awakening to your own happiness. <coughs> the, first is, the first is what I call the ethical ostrich. Someone who is blatantly dishonest, rationalizing and justifying their gross disregard of minimal standards of ethical conduct. who engages in pervasive denial that there's any ethics involved anyway, resulting in behavior of acquisition and enjoyment of resources without restraint, and a defensive denial of ethical considerations that results in justification of killing in war and for sustenance results in wanton destruction of the limited resources of this planet for personal consumption and enjoyment results in widespread confusion disempowerment abuse and exploitation of others for sexual purposes and abuse of alcohol and drugs to a crisis level. What is the motivation for such behavior? Profit and pleasure. We don't have to look far. We just have to look into our own mind. We can see it in newspapers. We can see it in others, easy. But look in your own mind. What do you see going on there that resonates with this? Maybe we're not acting it out, but the thoughts run by occasionally. What this person who's the ethical ostrich doesn't realize, doesn't recognize, is that the sacred thing we violate today does not want to retaliate immediately. It lives in a different time frame. It may not come back to haunt us today or tomorrow or even next year. But it's there. The seed has been planted. Conditions will sprout it. It's easy to see that there's not much hiriotapa, conscience or modesty in such a person. And massive delusion is the norm, fueled by and supporting excessive greed, fear, 
tremendous conceit and arrogance. It's easy to see in our minds. It's easy to see in the collective, in our culture, in the world, international politics. There's a lot of this going on. It's as if, as one set of lyrics goes, when I awoke, the dire wolf, 600 pounds of sin was grinning at my window. All I said was, come on in. It's as if we look sin, offense, in the face and say, that's for me. The ethical ostrich. The second is what I call the spiritual athlete. Someone who has just recently come to, the, to, to, to awaken a little bit their spiritual yearnings. And uh, maybe their initial contact with uh, moral superiority brings them to assume a spiritual persona. And they can feel quite invulnerable just assuming the mantle of spirituality. And the uh, persona can become tremendously inflated, <coughs> believing that they have the ability to do what no other has ever done. And you know, we come across this in our own mind. Sometimes sitting in meditation, and we have a good sitting, or we get a good idea, we get a little high, we get a little joy, and suddenly we're thinking that we're pretty invulnerable, that we really are pretty spiritual. And the motivation for behavior, the behavior of a spiritual athlete, is to acquire religious or spiritual dogma, to be good to assume a holier-than-thou attitude. And it manifests in behavior to, of uh, uh, fixing the world or righting the wrongs of oneself or others, and sometimes acting like karma police, where we're going to make sure that those who commit wrongs get what's coming to them. The mind in such a person can be highly energized, can have a tremendous amount of confidence, and uh, feel a lot of delight and interest. There's often a forced renunciation, a premature, willful renunciation of deeply ingrained habits. What such a person doesn't see, doesn't realize, doesn't acknowledge, is their idealization and their inability to recognize their own limits of just how true, truthful they may be. 
of just how celibate they really may be. Of just how um, perfect they keep the precepts. Often there's a lot of hubris, arrogance, pride, self-assertiveness, and the judgment of others often takes recourse in vengeful coercion through punishment or humiliation. And we've all seen it. We've seen our tendency to notice other yogis here who aren't keeping the precepts, aren't being silent, and we want to go up and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, don't you know it's supposed to be silent here? Because we're so much better than they are. We all have these flickerings. We just need to learn how to acknowledge it to ourselves and kind of bring ourselves down off that high horse. Kabir wrote a wonderful poem about such a spiritual athlete called The Hopeful Spiritual Athlete. The spiritual athlete often changes the color of his clothes and his mind remains gray and loveless. Or he sits inside a shrine room all day so that God has to go out and praise the rocks. He drills holes in his ears. His beard grows enormous and matted. People mistake him for a goat. <laughs> he goes out into the wilderness areas, strangles his impulses, makes himself neither male nor female. He shaves his skull, puts his robe in an orange vat, reads the Bhagavad Gita and becomes a terrific talker. Kabir says, actually, you're going in a hearse to the country of death, bound hand and foot. That's the second. The first is the ethical ostrich. The second is the spiritual athlete. The third is the trainee, someone who has sincerely, authentically, openly, honestly, looking at the precepts for guidance in their life. Someone who is developing restraint, turning away from activities that are unskillful. Someone who is trying to and is recognizing his or her ability to renounce what they no longer actually need in terms of unskillful behavior. Able to reflect on the value and the meaning of their intentions, their motivations, and their actions before acting, while they're acting, and after. One who's able to make amends for offenses. The motivation of such a person is self-improvement, honest self-improvement, through experiential understanding, so that he or she can actually reduce their personal dukkha, discover some peace of mind through understanding. Kabir again says, if you have not lived through something, it is not true. Such a person is able to skillfully criticize themselves, to look at their actions, to look at their speech, and to see that yes, indeed, I was 
concerned, careful of, guarding my sense of worth as a human being or others' sense of worth as a human being. And when we understand, when we see, when we acknowledge to ourselves that I have committed an offense, we're able to understand that it is ignorance. It is habit at the root of that offense. And it's not I. I don't need to be blamed. I don't need to be found guilty. Here, the trainee, the, uh, the ethical trainee, is really, really working to develop their spiritual faculties, the, the, the confidence, the energy, the mindfulness, the wisdom of the precepts, of living with the precepts. And sometimes we really need tremendous energy in living with the precepts to align our behavior and our speech with our internal standards in the face of disregard from others. And any of us may have found ourselves in that situation. Peer pressure is tremendous to behave in ways that might be an offense to our own standards. And it takes tremendous energy to look at that and say, I'm not going to behave that way. Robert Bly likes to tell the story of William Stafford, who during World War II refused uh, to go to war and was a conscientious objector. Robert Bly says, William Stafford started his life off with a correct decision. And in a book that he recently edited of uh, some poems, he mentioned that William Stafford, in becoming a conscientious objector in World War II, made a right decision. And Robert Bly's editor called him up and said, you can't say that. You've got to say, he made a right decision for him. And Robert Bly said, bullshit. <laughs> Trainee, the ethical trainee, sometimes is besieged by wavering confidence, energy, wisdom, and sometimes may be motivated by fear of doing something wrong, may lead to frustration, disappointment, unhealthy self-criticism, maybe a sense of guilt, an over-identification of I am responsible, or even feeling inauthentic when we can't maintain the, the standards that we feel are our own. And sometimes, too, we may find ourselves honing to perfectionism and uh, becoming impatient with our imperfections. Or we may find ourselves living without humor 
in our life. Being too literal-minded and unable to evaluate for ourselves the situation at hand. And I think that we here are for the most part in this category of trainees who are really working with the precepts, really working to see how they create happiness in our life and understanding and seeing in, our, in, in just our daily life around here how an offense to our own standards or an offense to the standard of this community agitates the mind, makes the next sitting impossible, restless, disturbed, fearful, guilty. This is working with the precepts. And we really refine our understanding of how the precepts or how ethical considerations affects our life. The fourth, after trainee or in the continuum, is, is what I call the virtuoso or the virtuosa. where we really have a fair mastery of the precepts with humility, where we really recognize that my actions or, or the actions in my speech really flows from a real deep personal understanding of the wisdom that the precepts codify, and yet a recognition also that I'm human and I'm fallible, and I might make offense. And having the humility to acknowledge that. The motivation for such behavior and action is that our heart really resonates with the wisdom in the precepts. where we remain authentic and with a firm, stable sense of integrity to what we know is right. One limitation of this stage, as I can see it, is that we may remain in isolation from a larger community. A good example of this is in a poem by Antonio Machado from Portrait. Antonio Machado was a Spanish uh, poet back during the early part of the century. And he was asked to write his uh, biography and he wrote a poem about 40 lines long and in it, he says of himself, there is a man of rule who behaves as he should, but more than him, I am, in the good sense of the word, good. I fall silent so as to separate voices from echoes, and I listen among the voices to one voice and only one. 
Can you get an image of this man? Someone who is in the good sense of the word, good, who knows his own voice and not the echoes of others. And what I think is the fifth or maybe an an, uh, epitome of ethical conduct is one who has the mastery and really has the uh, expression of the wisdom, but whose actions are the very essence of wisdom without a sense of, I'm keeping the precepts. Whose every action is for and is motivated by love and compassion for himself and the larger human or any being community. And we have that possibility. We have that potential. To develop our wisdom to such a degree that our action resonates. All of our actions, all of our speech resonates with our heart and the hearts of those around us. Antonio Machado went on to say, I talk always to the man who walks along with me. Men who talk to themselves hope to talk to God someday. My soliloquies amount to discussions with this friend who taught me the secret of loving human beings. And we can see that when we can live, when we can arouse and mature, bring to maturity and respect our own ethical standards and the standards of community in which we live, we can see that the happiness that results is the happiness from, of freedom from fear, of blame, freedom from, and the happiness of freedom from self-reproach, from any form of punishment by authorities, from inaccurate criticism. The happiness of living that life is what we really want. And it doesn't cost anything. It's available to us. Still, there's further happiness possible through concentrating the mind and developing and experiencing the happiness of a pure mind and through the development of wisdom resulting in the happiness of peace. And I'll be talking about these two subjects in the future. So maybe we should sit for a couple of minutes to reflect on and to let go of what was said.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.